Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to be in the first chapter. If you scan the pages of Scripture, you will not have to go far to find people who impact the story of what God is doing who don't seem to be people of importance. One of my favorite Swahili proverbs translates to something like this. Even a small goat can knock over the pot of stew. If you live in a country like Kenya, losing the pot of stew is a big problem. That was your food for the day. And generally that proverb is used to say you need to handle small problems because small problems can become big problems. But I love that proverb because it says that even small people, small insignificant people can make a big difference. And we've heard that really through Pastor Ken's series out of the book of Ruth where you have small people, people that shouldn't be noticed, and yet because of the simplicity and the directness of their faith and confidence in God, they have a major impact on the story of what God is doing. And so I want to go to another person, someone named Hannah, another person who is small or should be small and insignificant, and yet because of the simplicity and the directness of her faith, she has a significant impact on what God is doing. To get us started, I'd like us to read the first seven verses of the book of Samuel. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we will read the first seven verses. Now there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she, that is, Penina, provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, as we come to this central time of our worship together as a Tri-City Baptist Church family, we open up the Word. The Word really is our sacrament. It's the way that we receive grace as your Spirit works in our hearts. As we yield ourselves to receive the truth, but then as we open our hearts to believe the truth, and then as we seek opportunities to use our hands to live out the truth, that is how we worship you. And so we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would apply these words. Holy Spirit, you wrote these words. And yet these words written so long ago are for us today. 
And because of the unique circumstances of Pastor Ken being sick, I believe that there's a special purpose for this message for our church family today that you have designed. And so we step forward expectantly, asking you to work through the communication of your words. So we pray for your spirit to be active in my heart and the hearts of everyone gathered here today, that we would hear your truth, that we would be changed by it. So help us in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to notice something there in the first verse. There was a man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim. And uh, we do have some newly married folks. Uh, we have some, uh, some expecting children. And I think we've got, a, we've got a row right here of names you could consider. Eliza, you might want to pick one of these. Elkanah, what about that one? Angelina, you could... Elkanah, how about um, Jehoram? How about Elihu? That one has a real ring to it. Uh, Tohu, the son of Zuf. I think Zuf should be a Bible name that we use. Here we have this man, Elkanah, and he is the son of these people, Elihu, Tohu, and Zuf. And he was an Ephraimite. Encounter a list of names like that describing someone. Here's what you need to know Elkanah was a somebody. He comes from a heritage and a lineage, and this heritage and lineage, even though we don't know who Elihu, Tohu, and Zuf were, we do know that they were an elite family and an elite heritage. He was an Ephraimite. This is a man who has a background. Elkanah is a somebody. But in verse 2, we meet someone else. This man, Elkanah, had two wives, and the name of the one, or we could read it this way, the name of the first was Hannah. It's actually important that we understand that Hannah was the first wife of this important man, Elkanah. The name of the first was Hannah. The name of the other, or the name of the second, was Penina. And then this last sentence of verse 2 is fateful. These are fateful words. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Verse 1 informs us that Elkanah is a somebody. The last words of verse 2 inform us that Hannah was a nobody. I want you to imagine for a moment being Hannah. And you marry Elkanah, who is the son of Elihu, is the son of Tohu, who is the son of Zuf. There are some expectations if you're Hannah and you've married Elkanah. There's an expectation that there will be a little Zuf the third running around. And yet Hannah has no children. And it is undoubtedly the case that Elkanah has added a second wife because of the fact that Hannah has not produced a Zuf the third. And so Elkanah, who we learn later does love Hannah, has actually taken, against God's plan and design for marriage, has actually taken a second wife. And this has been successful as far as the world is concerned because we learn later that Penina has produced not just children, but it says sons and daughters. 
This was a good choice as far as the world was concerned. You have a woman named Hannah who is not doing what she is expected to do within that society and culture, and so you take another wife, and this is productive. But where does this leave Hannah? If you understand the cultural situation that Hannah is in, you'll understand that Hannah is lacking for two things. And these two words matter to our conversation today. Hannah lacks both significance and security. I want you to think about those two words, significance and security. If you talk to anyone who has observed human nature, if you talk to even people outside the church, if you talk to psychologists and anthropologists, if you study the news and the geopolitical things that are going on, you'll know that security and significance are major motivations of human behavior. As a kid growing up in Africa, Kenya, which is relatively secure, was a place of refuge for the insecure nations that were around us. You can go to Nairobi today and there are entire areas of the city of Nairobi that are uh, where Somali refugees live. Because in the early 90s, there was just a stream of Somalians that moved into Nairobi. Even today, there's a huge refugee camp in Kenya of Somalians who have fled because of the insecurity. When I was a kid growing up, we met refugees from Rwanda because of the terrible genocide that was in Rwanda. Those people fled because of the lack of security. All over the world today, there are people who are fleeing their homes. What would motivate someone to leave their home, the place where they were born? They don't have security. Security is a major motivation for human behavior. It works at that macro level, but it also works at a personal level. Security is a major priority. In fact, I think if we thought about that word security from God's vantage point for just a moment, what did God do when he made this world and he created humanity? He put them in a garden. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the Garden of Eden was a place of security and safety? It was, right? I mean, if you wanted a pet lion, go for it. He was never going to turn on you. Just as a matter of recommendation, I would not recommend this today. Do not order a pet lion. He'll look cute little. They get big. They get ugly. He'll turn on you someday. God actually designed humans to live in a place of security. But our world's broken. The fall has messed up our world. We now live in a cursed world. All of a sudden, those same lions that Adam and Eve walked around with were now looking at Adam and Eve as prey. You've got to run from them now. And for all of human history from the fall on, humanity, whether you live in a secure country like America or if you live some other place, security is a major issue for us and it's a major motivation for us. And I don't think that's wrong. It's not wrong for us to try to secure our homes or our lives or our health. But if we learned anything as we went through this COVID situation, pandemic, we learned that a lot of people have made security and safety into a God. My friends, we live in a comfortable country and a comfortable place. And when we start to feel uh, some of that security that we're used to rattled, well, we saw how we reacted to that. People started to panic. Hannah lacked security. 
And to some degree, all of us lack security because we live in a fallen world. Seeking security, trying to secure our health, trying to secure our well-being is not wrong, but it is wrong when we make security our ultimate goal and aim. My friends, if you look at the wall that's right here on the other side of the auditorium, you're going to see the faces of lots of people who have decided that security will not be their top priority. People have decided that they will take a risk at going someplace maybe less secure than Chandler, Arizona for the sake of the gospel. There are missionaries on that wall that have chosen to go to places that maybe would be scary to go to, but they have trusted that God is calling them. I know that you've heard this before, but it bears repeating. The safest place to be is in the middle of God's will for your life. If God has called you to serve faithfully right here in Chandler, to raise your family here, to serve at Tri-City Baptist Church, this is the place you ought to be. This is the place of safety and security. But if God calls you to go somewhere else, do not in the name of security run away from the will of God. Security is a proper thing for us to seek, but it cannot become our ultimate. Hannah also lacked significance. We have to understand the culture of the day. Again, the pressure that was on the wife of Elkanah to produce an heir. He is the son of this elite line of people. And she had the expectation, and in that culture, that was her job, was to produce an heir. And that hasn't happened. And so she lacks significance. You know, I think significance is something that God has also designed. I think God wants us to do things that are significant. The trouble comes when we allow the world to define what significance looks like and what significance means. I love the quote from William Carey. William Carey said, I'm not afraid of failure. He said this, I'm afraid of succeeding at something that doesn't matter. You can look at the example of someone like Solomon. Surely you would look at Solomon and say, Solomon lived a significant life. As the world measures significance, Solomon was the most significant of all of the kings of Israel. He was an administrative genius. He was everything he touched turned to gold, so it seemed. The country thrived. The country expanded its boundaries. He had political alliances with all the countries around him. He was wise. He knew about botany. He knew about zoology. He was an engineering genius. In the eyes of the world, Solomon lived a significant life. But as he comes to the end of his life, he realizes that everything he had spent the endeavor of his life on was not significant. He calls it vanity. It was emptiness. It was chasing after the wind. And he says this, to live a truly significant life, you have to fear God and keep His commandments. We can't fall into the trap of measuring significance the way that the world measures significance. And yet God does call us to live significant lives. So how do we do that? We live lives of faith and obedience. So Hannah lacks security and significance. 
But what does she do in that circumstance? I want you to see what Hannah does in her position of lacking security and significance. Let's just read through some of these verses here and see the situation that Hannah is. I want us to feel the weight of it. Look at verse 6. Hannah has a rival. Hannah has an adversary, it says in verse 6. Literally, that Hebrew word is enemy. Her enemy also provoked her severely to make her miserable. It's repeated in the next verse that Penina provoked her so that she wept bitterly and did not eat. Look down in verse 10 as Hannah goes to the temple. It goes to the tabernacle. It says in verse 10, And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. When she speaks to Eli, starting in verse 15, listen to what she says in verse 15. She says, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. In the next verse, she describes her situation. Out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. Here's Hannah with no children, and yet she's living in a house with Penina, who has lots of kids, and Penina never missed a chance to whisper in her ears and to remind her that she had given Elkanah children and Hannah had not. Can you imagine the breakfast table in the, in the house of Elkanah? Oh, I'm sorry, Hannah, you look a little tired this morning. Did the kids keep you awake last night? Penina never missed a chance to remind her that she had failed and that she was insignificant. But what does Hannah do with her insignificance and her insecurity? She goes to the Lord. I don't know how you're feeling today. I don't know if in some area of your life you're feeling insecurity or if you feel insignificant, but what do you do at these moments? This matters. It matters what you do at these moments. We see the simplicity of Hannah's faith when she is in bitterness of soul, when her soul is in anguish, when she is in grief. She goes to the Lord. She turns her, her eyes to the Lord. And my friends, this was very countercultural. Remember that this story happens in the days of the judges. In the days of the judges is defined for us in the very last verse of the book of Judges where we're told that during the time of the judges there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The time of the judges was not a time where people were, were known for their faithfulness and for their worship of Yahweh. In fact, it was known for the opposite. It was a time of lawlessness. It was a time of rebellion. And by the way, if you come to the Lord with your insignificance and your insecurity, your countercultural in our world today, our world has all kinds of other solutions other than turning to God. But my friends, when we are facing these things in our lives, when we are in bitterness of soul, the Lord should not be our place of last resort. He should be the first place that we run. The Lord is our refuge. The Lord is our strength. The psalmist says this, some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And in our culture today, some trust in money, some trust in the medical system, some trust in the government. And listen, those things have a role and a function, but ultimately, those that know the Lord remember the name of the Lord when they are in trouble. And we see this woman of faith when she is in desperation. She remembers the name of the Lord. 
She is not looking for medical treatments ultimately. That's not wrong to do. She is not ultimately looking to other things. She's not going primarily for therapy to help her with these things. She is going to the Lord. Never forget the name of the Lord when you are in trouble and difficulty. And this is what Hannah does. She goes to the Lord and she pours out her soul to the Lord and she makes a vow. The vow is written for us in verse 11. Then she made a vow to the Lord and said, O Lord of hosts, every time you read that title, Lord of hosts, understand that in our translation of the Bible, that word host is not talking about hospitality. The Lord is not in charge of a, or, uh, he's not in charge of a hotel with lots of people working. Okay, that word host means armies. And so Hannah pours out her heart to the Lord of armies. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your handmaid and remember me and forget and not forget your handmaid, but I will give your but will give your man's your maidservant, excuse me, a male child then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. She makes a solemn vow to the Lord. Lord, if you will remember me in my anguish, then I will dedicate the child that you give me to you. She goes to the Lord. It's good that she turns to the Lord. It's good that she prays this prayer. It's good that she makes this vow. But my friends, words are words. And in the time of the judges, it was not uncommon for people to invoke the name of Yahweh, to make rash vows, to say things that they didn't intend to follow through on. But that's not Hannah. Hannah has a simplicity to her faith in that in the middle of her anguish, she goes to the Lord and she makes this vow. But she was also a woman who acted. When the child comes, there is no cultural pressure for Hannah to deliver the child back, for her to keep her vow. This was a time when people routinely broke their vows to Yahweh. No one would have thought twice if she had come up with an escape clause. You know, maybe in her prayer she had her fingers crossed and there was a loophole to get out of it. That's the kind of stuff people did all the time. You see, Yahweh was not regarded seriously by the people that lived in Israel. He was a name that people used flippantly for their own purposes. It was like rubbing a rabbit's foot. It, Yahweh was like the talisman. He wasn't someone that the people of Israel feared. But this woman is a God-fearing woman. She would not dare break her vow that she had made to the Lord. There was no pressure from anyone else except herself. She knew that she had promised the God of heaven that she would dedicate her child to the Lord. And since she was a God-fearing woman, she acted in faith. I grew up in Nairobi across the street from the Olympic-styled sporting complex. We had a large stadium, basketball stadium, but my favorite part of this was the aquatic complex. We had an Olympic-sized swimming pool, but we also had the full set of diving platforms that they use in the Olympics. And we would squeeze our way. Back then, I could squeeze my way through the bars. <laughs> Confession is good for the soul. My mom and dad are usually watching the live streams here. Mom and dad, I would cross the street, squeeze my way through the bars, and go swimming. Okay. 
would squeeze my way through the bars, and we would go to that diving pool. And let me tell you, there were lots of people at the bottom of the stairs that were not afraid of jumping off the 10-meter platform. Have you seen that 10-meter platform in the diving competitions in the Olympics? There were lots of people at the bottom of the stairs that were not afraid of jumping off the 10-meter platform. But do you know who wasn't afraid of jumping off the 10-meter platform? Do you know how you knew who wasn't afraid? It was their flailing body flying through the air. That's how you knew who wasn't afraid of jumping off the 10-meter platform. I have done this precisely once in my life. (laughs) Smack. (laughs) All you do is rotate just a little bit forward, and that hurts a lot. I was terrified of jumping off that 10-meter platform, but there was something I was more scared of, which is all the stuff people would say to you as you took the walk of shame down the stairs. That was way scarier. So I launched myself off that 10-meter platform exactly one time. My friends, it is not hard to say that you honor God. It is not hard to make a vow to God. People do it all the time. Even in a godless culture like ours, there are people who make vows to God. God, if you'll get me out of this situation, I'll do such and such. And the minute they're out of that circumstance, where does their vow go? Exactly nowhere. There are lots of people at the bottom of the stairs that aren't afraid. How do you know who's not afraid? How do you know who really fears God? How do you know who really has faith? See, what's really impressive in this story is not the prayer that Hannah prays. It's the walk that she makes from her house back to her, with her now weaned child, back to the temple. This is the impressive part. There is no peer pressure for her to honor her vow. And yet when it comes time for her to return the child to the Lord, she completes her vow. And my friends, we ought to be impressed with this woman. She is a woman of simple faith. She goes to the Lord in the middle of her despair, but she is a woman of active faith. Her faith had literally feet. She walked the road to Shiloh, delivered her son into the tent of the Lord. That wasn't an easy decision. If you read read this text and you think, oh, that was an easy choice for her to make we got to stop and pause. This has been her heart's desire for years. To have a child. Now the child is here. Was that an easy choice? To go that day when the child was weaned, to walk him down to Shiloh and to leave him there, was that an easy choice? No. No. But she feared God. She kept her vow. And she returned the child to the Lord. I'm sorry, it's summer break, but we're going to do some math. At the start of the story, how many children does Hannah have? She has zero. She goes to the temple, prays the vow, the Lord hears her prayer, gives her a son, And in the middle of the story, she has how many sons? One. Then she keeps her vow, and she returns the child to the Lord. So at the end of chapter 1, after she has returned the child to the Lord, 
how many sons does she have? Okay, he's still alive, but he's not with her. Okay, this, this wasn't, you know, a sacrifice. Okay. He's still alive, but he was young, and she has returned him to the Lord. So work with my spiritual math here a little bit, okay? She has zero to start with, and then she has, how many? And then she gives him back, and so she's back with, so let's just do a percentage here. What percentage of her children has she now given to the Lord? That's 100% of her children. Now she has returned 100% of her children to the Lord. This is strange to me. I want you to help me out here because I want us to understand a spiritual principle out of this passage that Hannah understood. My friends, how much of what we have have we received from the Lord? What percentage of what we have have we received from him? 100%. So we've got nothing, right? Are you with me? How much do we have in and of ourselves? That's a big fat, can you say it with me? That's a big fat zero. So we get how much from the Lord? Everything, 100%, right? And then what does he ask for? How much? He asks for all of it. I know we tithe 10%. That's what we give actively to the Lord as as an offering, But God doesn't want 10%. He really wants all that you have, right? In other words, the 90% that we keep, we're supposed to spend for him. Are you with me? Our energies, our efforts, everything, God really wants all of it. But why does God do it? Why does God give us everything and then say, oh, you know what, can I have that back? He already owns it, right? Are you guys with me this morning? Does he already own it all? So he gives it to us and he says, oh, I'll take that back. What is that transaction about? You just, you already have it, just keep it. What is that transaction all about? Well, don't take it from me. Let's hear Hannah talk about it. I want you to see the end of this verse, or this chapter, excuse me. Look with me. Starting in verse 26. This is Hannah as she returns to the tent of the Lord. She's interacting with Eli, the high priest. So the lowercase lords are basically like, sir, she's talking to Eli. Oh, my sir, Lord, Eli, as your soul lives, sir, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me, read the next two words, the Lord has granted me my petition. Pay attention to those words. The Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have, what's the next word? I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord So they worship the Lord there. Now I want to talk about the word choice there, the translators mean of the word Lent. Okay? Lent here means something like when you ask someone to borrow their toothpaste. There is no expectation of return. 
Can I borrow your toothpaste? Nope, you can just have it, okay? <laughs> Don't want what you use back, okay? See, in English, the word lent means I, I lend something to you and it, with the expectation at some point that I'll get it back. But that's not what this Hebrew word means. The Hebrew word really means something like dedicated. Okay, so I want you to read that last verse with that. We're just going to substitute that word dedicated. Therefore, I also have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be dedicated to the Lord. So here's what Hannah is saying, and this is what we have to, we have to see the link that Hannah is making. The Lord has granted me my petition, and I am now going to dedicate him to the Lord. In Hebrew, that word petition and the word lent come from the same root in Hebrew. And there's just a small change in how the word is written, but they come from the same root. And so there's just a small change, and I want to use an English example to help us understand the relationship between these two words. Okay, so in English, you are either the employer or you are the, the employee, right? try to get that out smoother, okay? You are either the employer or you are the employee. Same root, but you just change a letter at the end, and what changes? Okay, you are either the one employing, you are the subject, you are doing the action of employing, or if you're the employee, you are receiving the action of being employed, right? Employer, employee. These two Hebrew words are related in a similar way. You are either the receiver or you are the receive, you're the payer. Okay, you're either the payer or you're the payee. Okay, is everyone with me? Okay, that's as grammar as we're going to get. Okay, that's how these words are related. And so Hannah is using the same word, just changing the root. She's using the same root, just changing the letters a little bit. And this is what she's doing. She's linking these two ideas together. And here is the spiritual principle. I have received, and if you have received, you have the responsibility of being someone who then gives, okay? You're with me. I have received through petition. The Lord has granted me my petition. Now I have become the giver. But God doesn't need me to give. But Hannah understood if you have received from the Lord, you have to become the giver. You have to give it back to him. Why? Because when you give to God what he has given to you, when you, have, when you recognize, I started with zero, I've gotten everything from him, and I'm going to give everything back to him as best as I can, when that is the spiritual principle by which you, by which you operate. I've received, now I'm giving what goes along with your gift? Let's think about Hannah. As Hannah sent her son to Shiloh and left him there. Was it just her son that was serving in Shiloh? What had she left there as well? Her heart. Do you know why God gives everything to you and then says, hey, I'll have that back? It's because he's after something. He doesn't need your material possessions. He's got it all already. He doesn't need your energy. He doesn't need your mind. He's smarter than you are. 
He doesn't need your talent. He's better than you are. He doesn't need that. But he wants something. My friends, you know what he wants? He wants your heart. That's why he gives everything to you and then asks for everything back. This is God in his grace getting after us because he wants our hearts. And actually, it's when we give the things that are nearest and dearest to us to the Lord that we're really giving our hearts. Do you think that Hannah, for the rest of Samuel's career of service to the Lord, was a passive observer? Do you think she was a dispassionate observer of all the things Samuel was doing? I mean, read the rest of the book. Her son, in God's hands, is going to do amazing things. Did she read the newspaper passively? Oh, look, Samuel's doing stuff. Or did she have an interest in what Samuel was doing? That wasn't Samuel doing stuff. That was her son doing stuff. And this is what's so cool about what God is doing in this world. You start with nothing. He gives you everything. He asks for it back. And when you give it back, your heart goes with it. And when your heart goes with it, you are now tied in to what God is doing in this world. And God in his grace does not need you, but God wants you. And he wants you to be a part of the story of what God is doing in this world. Hannah lacks security and significance, but for thousands of years, when you tell the story of how God brought about the Messiah, you cannot tell that story without talking about the promise that Hannah made and then the promise that Hannah kept. It was simple faith that acted, that tied Hannah into the story of what God was doing in the world. It wasn't because she was fancy. It wasn't because she was talented. It wasn't because she was wealthy. It was because she understood that what I have received in petition, I now give back to the Lord in dedication. And in that simple act, her life was now tied in to what God is doing in this world. Don't take my word for it. Let's take Hannah's word for it. Go to the next chapter. Look at this. Go to the next chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 2. I love the Bible. The Bible is a musical. The narrative sections are a musical. There's story and then all of a sudden they're singing. And when they pause to sing, this is where the teaching and preaching points come in. Okay? You've had the story but now let's hear Hannah express her heart to the Lord and she does this through beautiful poetry, through a beautiful song. And we can't read the whole song or break down all 10 verses, but I do want us to pay attention to the first and last verse. Okay, you guys with me? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Now that term, my horn, she was, she was not a trumpeter. Okay? She didn't play the French horn. 
that word horn means something like strength or status, okay? My status is exalted in the Lord. Hannah's situation had changed. She had gone from being a nobody to being a somebody. Why? Why had that changed? Because the Lord had invested her life with a purpose. In giving her the son and then her returning that son, her status has completely changed. My horn, my status is exalted in the Lord. Read this next line. I love it. I smile at my enemies. Who is that? Who is that? Penina. Penina been, has been awful quiet of late. Lord, thank you for shushing Penina. I smile at my enemies. Penina. Because I have rejoiced in your salvation. The word salvation there is not talking about her spiritual salvation. It's talking about the deliverance that the Lord had brought out of that circumstance that she was in. So look at verse 1. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My status is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies. Thank you for shushing Penina. Because I have rejoiced in your salvation. But take verse 1 and compare it now to verse 10. Do you see any parallels comparing verse 1 to verse 10? See any parallels? Verse 1 talks about whose adversaries? Verse 1. Hannah's adversaries, right? But verse 10 is talking about someone else's adversaries. Whose adversaries are being talked about in verse 10? The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. And the sword that the Lord was using to fight against his enemies was named Samuel. Samuel was the vessel in the hands of the Lord. He was the tool. He was the, he was the means by which the Lord was accomplishing his purpose in Israel. Samuel was the anointer of kings. He was the one that the Lord used as both the last judge of Israel, as the prophet of the um, monarchical period of the monarchy. He was the anointer of kings. He, Messiah, is the first Mashiach, okay? He anoints the first anointed one, David. That's her son in the Lord's hands that is being used to defeat the Lord's enemies. The adversaries of the Lord shall broken, be broken in pieces. From heaven he shall thunder against them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. I will give strength, he will give strength to his king. And read this last line, verse 10, and exalt the horn. Did you see horn in verse 1? Whose status is improved in verse 1? Hannah's. But whose status is being exalted in verse 10? His anointed. That is in Hebrew, his Messiah. For all time, Hannah's story is a story of her son Samuel being used to kick off this whole line of messiahs that will end with a name that is above all names. For all time, Hannah's simple faith and active faith, a faith that obeyed and kept the vow, 
for all time is used to start off this project of God bringing about, about his anointed. And Hannah was not a passive observer of those events because she had received her son from the Lord and had returned him from the Lord, because she had been the receiver, but then she became the giver. For all time, her life is attached to what God is doing in this world. And it's the work that he's still doing through the ultimate Messiah, Jesus Christ, and Hannah is always part of that story. My friends, God is sovereign in what's going to happen in this world. The outcomes are in his hands. But my friends, he is also sovereign in how those ends come about. And God in his wisdom has decided that he wants you and I to be part of the story of what he's doing in this world. And he in his grace has made a way for us to be part of it. And that is to receive everything from him and to give it all back. And when we in faith take that action of saying, Lord, I have nothing. All I have is of you and I'll let you use every part of my life. It doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to be up in front preaching. You don't have to be leading some big organization. It's when you look around your house, your material goods, the influence that you have with the people around you, the way that you serve here at Tri-City Baptist Church, when you do that in simple and active faith, you're now attached to what God is doing in this world. And my friends, if you want to know what security is, if you want to know what significance is, have your life in the hand of God. Because there is no place more secure than the hand of God. And there is no way for you to have more significance, the way that God measures significance, than for you to wake up in the morning and know that what you are doing with your life is serving what He is doing in this world. My friends, that's where security and significance is found. It's when our lives are in His hands. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.